And in, in speaking about this today, today's more just of a, of a wish and an encouragement. My goal today in, in speaking with you is to remind us of what we may in, uh, logically and understandably think are unattainable goals of a utopia that, that Jesus was calling us and inviting us into. The Jews, one of their great contributions to humanity, particularly in their religion and religious system of Judaism, was a, a different voice about the marginalized. Like, yeah, there's plenty of awful stuff in the Bible. We all know it, and you know me. I talk about it more than anybody. I don't duck any of that stuff. But the Jews uniquely also, one of their gifts to humanity was a shift in consciousness regarding the impoverished and the inequity in the way the world naturally plays itself out. So within their laws, within their Torah, they wrote a lot of things that were revolutionary in its day. Like, it, it, like in, in worlds, in the world population of 3,000 years ago, some of these concepts that were written into their religion were just like, what? Gotta be kidding me. Like, they, they would tell the society to care for the poor. What? Like literally societies 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and in many even today, like what do you mean care for the poor? Like no, you, you, need, to, you need to thoughtfully factor the poor in to your budget and we need to care for them and for the widow and for the orphan. And I'm gonna write laws into uh, this thing that they call them tzedakah. Tzedakah means, uh, uh, we, we could call it charity, would be an English translation, but it's a really difficult Hebrew word to translate accurately. It's more like care and compassion for those that have less and are in need. Uh, it's called tzedakah, social justice and support. So one of the laws, and we've, you've heard me talk on this one, was like not to glean the edges of your field to uh, Leviticus 19, 9 and 11 says that when you reap the harvest of your land, when you, and that you is plural, you all, when you all reap the harvest of your land, you, now singular, shall not reap all the way to the corner of the field or gather the gleaning of your harvest, the things that fall. You, sh you shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, the Lord, am your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. It's called peah, the corners of your field. It's, it's funny because they, they, they were so concerned about the poor. In the law was written, you can't harvest all of your field. You got to leave it accessible to people that don't have any food. Wow. That's a radical concept. It got so, in later commentators, Jewish cabinet, uh, commentators, in the Sifra, uh, Rabbi Rashi says this, uh, that, that the said, he interpreted, it's Rabbi Shimon puts it this way, these are commentaries from hundreds of years ago, that the person must leave Peah, the corner, only at the end of the field for four reasons, because of theft from the poor, wasting the time of the poor, the sake of appearance and because of Torah. So <clears throat> this is an ancient commentator saying, okay, here's what this 
Here's, here's a better way to interpret what it says. Um, where there's a road, leave all the fruit accessible there. Don't, don't think of four corners as like, like this. You've got to make it accessible to the poor, right? So they don't have to wander off somewhere and maybe get robbed. They don't have to waste their time checking out your whole 40 acres or 400 acres looking for something to eat. Don't waste the time of the poor because they don't have time to waste when they're trying to gather food. Make it accessible and visible so they can see it and they can keep moving down the road to the next field, to the next field, to the next field. And also for the appearance that you should be publicly held accountable for what you give. Now that's very contrarian to the Jesus notion that we have absorbed into the church, that do your giving in secret. No, these rabbis are like, no, 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 do your giving publicly. And that's not for pride. Of course, what Jesus was talking about was the issue of pride, of prideful givers, showy givers, okay? He was taking a shot at them. But the Jewish concept was like, no, you need to give publicly so we can all hold each other accountable that we're giving. Nobody, you know, gets to just privatize their check. You're all going to be, all the neighbors in the neighborhood are going to see by your fields that you're providing or not providing for the poor. We're holding each other accountable. Uh, I think that's really good. I think there's really something to be said for that. It's far too easy for too many to, to say, I give, but I won't, you know, reveal my tax return. <laughs> Don't look at my finances when I say I give. So, uh, Tzedakah was a big deal. The Jews were radical in their, in their concern about people. The Jews invented the weekend. Saturday, Shabbat was a revolution thousands of years ago when the Torah said to the people, take a day off. Society, the globe 3,000 years ago would have been like, what? Yeah, no, you're, you're gonna take a day. You can't take a day off. We gotta keep the grinding. We gotta keep, what about the competition? What about the this? No, 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 take a day off. Now, since the split between Shabbat, Sabbath, Saturday, and Christianity that started worshiping on Sundays, that's what created the weekend, the Saturday and Sunday off, these two faiths splitting and worshiping on different days. But the concept was there, take a day off. Not just you, your servants too. And guess what, your animals, let them have a day off. And every seventh year, take a year off. Make sure you save enough during the next six years so when the seventh year comes, you take the seventh year off and let the field rest too because even the ground, even the earth deserves rest and restoration. You just take a chill pill, chill for a, close the business down for a year. Save enough in the six prior years and then just chill. Radical concepts. Their attitude to the poor was a radical concept. Um, I love what this <coughs> rabbi says and uh, says here. 
Rabbi Moshe's, uh, Moshe uh, Alex Shah, 16th century, so 400 years ago. You shouldn't think that you are giving to the poor person from your own property, or that I have despised him, but not giving bread to him as I've given to you, for he is also my child, just as you are, and his portion is in your produce. Wow. Like they say, hey, dude, the, the earth is God's and everything in it. And there are haves and there are have-nots. But guess what? The have-nots have their portion in your having. Radical, radical stuff. Now, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going to either hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24, and repeated in Luke. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus' gospel was really easy for poor people to hear. It was directed at them with hope. It was really hard for rich people to hear. It was hard on their ears because it, it poked a finger at them and said, you have responsibilities as a rich person. This is not guilt. This is responsibility. It's about a, a moral obligation. God, Jesus says you can't serve God and money. That doesn't mean you can't make money, have money, create money. It means who are you serving in the process? What, what are you really serving, the money? Or are you serving God, even in its creation and use? Uh, Jesus liked to put it this way. He said, and you've heard this before, God is merciful. He lets the sun shine. The sun shines, thank you. The sun shines on the righteous and unrighteous and the rain falls in the righteous and unrighteous field. That's because he's a merciful God. It, and, and it's random. And it can be very random in life about who's on top and who's on bottom. Sometimes the rain and the sun falls and it benefits some more than others. And Jesus is saying, yep. And that's why the portion of the have-nots is in the have. Because it's all a gift from God. Jesus had a vision of the world that wasn't filled with competition but cooperation. Where people were valued over profits and power and privilege and property. Not, not that there's anything wrong with property or privilege or power or profit. It's just that the whole point of all that is to serve people together. This is a radical view. Not everyone is poor. And the goal was, listen, we can do things in Jesus' utopian vision to meet the needs, the basic needs of those who have far too little. Doesn't mean you can't have a bigger house or more cars than your neighbor, doesn't mean any of that. It kind of rather just begs the question, how much do we need? He tells that story, the parable of the the rich landowner that just keeps reaping huge harvest after harvest, and instead of sharing it, he just keeps remodeling his barn and making it bigger and bigger and bigger, and he's socking more and more and more away, and then he keels over dead 
And Jesus is like, you idiot. You, you, you socked it all away for yourself. And look at you now. You're dead and in the dirt. You could have lived a life of productivity and generosity. You could have seen the society around you grow so much better. Jesus tried to disturb minds, not give them personal peace. Too much of religious Christianity today is all about my personal path and my personal peace and my personal growth and my personal uh, centeredness. No, 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 no. He was in there to wreck people's minds, to remind them that we're all in this together. Nobody's on their own and nobody should be alone, that we are all connected. We belong to each other. In fact, our fate is in each other's hands in Jesus' view. Gandhi said the world has enough for everyone's need, but not everyone's greed. Brilliant, Gandhi. True. There's enough. There's enough for everybody. It's, it's, it's not about not enough for everybody's needs. It's about the greed of systems and persons where money is built and shoved into bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns. You can't have this accumulation of wealth without a disparity in wealth. There are three American families in the United States that have more wealth than 50% of the bottom half of all Americans. Three persons, three families that have more wealth than 165 million Americans put together. This is a disparity that is not good for the society, and it's not even good for the rich. And Warren Buffett, who's one of them, would tell you that. He's like, it's, it's, it's inconceivable that I've been able to make this much money. I can't even give away, and he's trying to. I mean, he's one of those guys that's literally like, but he'll tell you the system is just set up improperly and unjustly. And he's one of the three, and he admits it. It's completely out of whack. It takes a conscience, particularly by the haves. Jesus is not a capitalist and he's not a communist. Communists is a central government that wants to take everything from everybody. And then what do they actually do? They cre create a, a government elite class. What does capitalism do? The same thing. <laughs> it, it uses the wealth and the production of the many and then creates an elite class of the 1% of the three families that own more than 160 million other Americans. Jesus wasn't a capitalist, he wasn't a communist, he was into compassion. Being compassionate, whoever you are, whether you're rich or poor, compassionate. It's like that movie, uh, It's a Beautiful Mind. I don't know if you ever saw that with Russell Crowe. It's based upon the life of a Nobel Peace Prize winning economist. Brilliant man, won the Nobel Peace Prize as an economist, but he also happened to suffer from uh, schizophrenia, and it's a marvelous story. But what he won the Nobel Prize for was showing what capitalism does, how it devours. Uh, and to give you an example, the way the system works today, you have a town like Ojai, and half the town goes out the back end, and the other town half goes out the front end. 
He says, because of the system, and he built the formula for this, you put a gas station on the one end of town where 50% of the people thrive going out that way, getting their gas, and you put a gas station on the other end of town, and 50% of those people going that way thrive, and both these businesses are booming. But because of the capitalist system, what will happen is, of competition, is you will see those two gas stations in perfect places move closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer together until they're across the street from each other so they can compete and try to devour the other one. And that's why often you'll get off the freeway and you'll look for a gas station. You can't find one for frickin' ever. And then when you finally find one, there's four, on each, one on each corner. Because they're all out trying to compete each other and eat the other one up and put the other one out of business. That's not a really healthy system. Edward Abbey, a, a dreamer, a nut job, a philosopher and genius, kind of said it's the, ide all the ideology of a cancer cell. Growth for growth's sake, competition for competition's sake is a, an ideology of cancer and it eats up the global poor, the global environment. Charity can be a, a vital short-term care. I'm into the charity business. That's basically what I, I do a lot of. I do a lot of charity. Help people out. And it's valuable. Matter of fact, Kathy and I, we were in, uh, Friday, Friday night we were out and I'm standing in line. We're in Hollywood and I get the phone and see an unrecognizable number and, and then it goes away and then it goes to voicemail. And then I, so I listen to the voice message because I don't recognize the number. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's this woman. I told you about her maybe a couple of months ago, a woman who's, uh, who is distraught because her 42-year-old meth-addicted son who was homeless and wandering the streets somewhere in, I don't know, Sacramento, whatever, he's been homeless for decades, and a drug addict. Um, anyways, she needed help with him because he wanted help, and her neighbor said, well, you should call this guy Pastor Paul. So she called me up and she says, I'm trying to get my son inside. What's, what's the story? So she tells me the whole story. This, you know, she goes, this is not my son. I raised, he was a great kid. I raised a beautiful boy. And then he got involved with meth, with meth and his life fell apart. And he's been living on the streets ever since. And I've always wanted him to go to rehab, but he's never wanted to go to rehab. And it's been years. And I've had to set up boundaries. But he called me the other day and he wants to get into rehab for the first time. And I'm like, oh my God, that's fantastic. That's a big, it's a big deal. She's like, yeah. She goes, but you know, I'm short. And I said, well, we're short. well how much is it going to cost? Blah, blah, blah. How much are you short? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, how about I just give it to you? And she's like, what? I'm like, how about I just give it to you? Oh, she's like, Paul, I was just calling for, for help and direction and I wasn't expecting that. That's not, no, no. How about I just give it to you? And she's like bawling. All right. So I was, I'll drop it off your house. No, I'll come to, I want to come to your house. So she comes to my house, give her a big hug. Anyways, so I don't see her for like the last six weeks. Her son goes into rehab. She called and left a message Friday. She goes, I just got to tell you, I wanted you to know that this is something he's never accomplished before in his life. He did the, the week-long detox, and then he did the 30-day in-house program. And right now, he's continuing the program. He has 40 days sober. He's got a part-time job outside, and a part-time job is cooking 
um, inside the halfway house. I've seen him. I've never seen him this healthy in, in decades. He looks amazing. I just wanted to give you an update. Awesome. That's charity. And sometimes it works that way. But there's a bigger challenge, and that's systems. Systemic injustice. It's what we deal with the homeless. It's easy in one sense to do what I do. Support a homeless shelter where we give food, and as we do, and we have overnight hosts, and we provide bedding. But the bigger question asks, well, why, well, why are these people homeless? What's going on in the background? The vast majority of the, of the homeless problem, I was just in Los Angeles, and if you're in Los Angeles, you see it everywhere, is, is, is a mental health problem. It's not just homelessness. You can give all those people homes tomorrow, and they're going to be wrecks the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Why? Because they don't have any access to any health care. They don't have access to mental health care. They don't have access to medication. They don't have access to counselors. Many of them have suffered horrible abuses as children, and therefore their addictions need to be addressed because their addiction is medicating, a self-medication that ends up being its own monster. You, 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 it, it's, it's about systems. And that's justice work, and that's what Jesus was into. He said, you can't serve God in money. He said, there's a better way. He's saying everybody matters, the poor, the rich, the working class, the women, people of color, immigrants, legal or not, they all matter. I'm for border security. I understand that for any nation. But I'm still treating people humanely, especially people who are coming here because they're trying to get away from depravity. There's a right and wrong way to go about things. And we've got to make a choice about it. James Robinson is a PhD economist and theologian, the Reverend James Robinson. He writes in his book, The Gospel of Jesus, that when Jesus offered this kingdom of God concept, it was antithetical to the current world systems politically and religiously and socially. It was a, it was a new kingdom where looking out for number one wasn't the basis our dilemma is a human dilemma, he writes. In large part, we are each other's faith. We become the tool of evil that ruins another person as we look out for ourselves, having long abandoned any youthful idealism we might have once cherished. But if we, and we means collectively in our government, each would cease and desist from pushing the other down to keep ourselves up, the vicious cycles would be broken. Society would become mutually supportive rather than self-destructive. And that's what Jesus was up to. Jesus' message was simple. He wanted to cut straight to the point. Trust God to look out for you by providing people who will care for you and listen to him when he calls you to provide to them. God is somebody you can trust, so give it a try. That's what Jesus would talk about with the ravens in the air and the lilies of the field, that they don't strike the sparrows that are sold for a dime a dozen, but he knows when one falls to the ground. God cares about everything, the tiniest things, everything else. And Jesus' invitation is to trust the Father. If you ask him for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a snake or a scorpion. You can trust him to give you what you need. And that trust invitation isn't just to the individual, it's to all people. Because when everybody buys into the kingdom of God and you trust God, all of a sudden you realize it's all going to work out. 
our society is going to become so much more healthy. It's going to be so much more just. That was, for Jesus, what faith and discipleship were all about. Jesus was saying, they're hungry because some hoard food. They're cold because some hoard clothing. And our dilemma as a nation is not to hoard or put trust in our wallets, but to put trust in God, our securities in God. God is there for them. And he's there for us. So Jesus' vision of the world was one where people took care of people. It wasn't about personal peace of mind. It was about a future where wealth wasn't hoarded, where there wasn't this great disparity between the have and have-nots. It was a community that trusted God to take care of all our needs, including mine when I've got more and I can give a little away. I want to say this, try something out of the ordinary. One of my favorite games, board games, growing up as a kid, was the game Monopoly. And that is the capitalist system in a nutshell on a game board. All right, you play, you got four players, and you're all given the same amount of money, and then you start rolling the dice. And sometimes the dice roll in your favor, and sometimes you land in a good place, and you buy this little house, and then you go up this way, and then you're on Broadway, and then you're, and you're going through this thing, and uh, play that game sometime. You know, of course, you know, as I was never very good at it, uh, the one in the end busts everybody else, right? They end up with all the red hotels all on Broadway, and you just roll the dice, and you end up on that street, and you're hosed. Boom, you're broke, you're out of money, you're out of the game. I remember, I remember distinctly one of the first times I got to play the game with my sister, who's 10 years older than me. So I think she, I must have been six. She was like 16. And her friends were playing, right? And they let me play, and I was so excited. So I start out my money, and they're trying to help me. But I'm just getting smashed, right? And finally, you know, I roll the dice, and I'm busted. And two of the friends are kind of laughing at me, and, you know, she's laughing at me. And I picked up the whole board, and I just threw it up in the sky. <laughs> And I ran away crying. I was like, screw this. You know that God actually does that in the Bible? It's called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years in the law was written the year of Jubilee. And it was basically like doing exactly what I did. I didn't know I was a little prophet then. Like, this, this is BS. This is BS. God does that, the year of jubilee, the year of canceling debts. That yeah, you're in debt, you stay in debt, your family's been in debt, but there comes a point where son of a gun, the debt's gotta end and we're ending it now. You're not in debt anymore. So I challenge you to play Monopoly this way. Do the same game, keep it going. But as soon as someone is literally about to become bust, give them a little of your cash, Maybe give them one of your greenhouses. Everybody chips in a little and then keep playing the game and see what happens. You know what happens if you keep doing that? The game never ends. It never ends. There will always be others to look out for the one that has the less. 
nobody's gonna, there's always gonna be people with the big red hotels and they're still making money and they've got way more money than you, but what the heck, I can give you a load. Buy yourself a little house, do a little something, and you don't, you don't get any poor. Or all of a sudden, yeah, you were, you were living high, and then, my God, I can't believe the rolls of the dice I'm getting lately. I'm just getting smashed. I'm losing, losing, losing. Next thing you know, somebody's going like, I got you covered here. You have a little greenhouse, a few hundred bucks. You're staying in the game. You're staying in the game. That, that is a just society. That is the utopia that God calls us for to remind us that we are in this together, that we're not alone, we're connected, we belong to each other, we're part of each other, we share each other's fate, but even more, we are each other's fate. It's not just about my peace of mind, but it's about a distributive path towards peace on earth for all our brothers and sisters. Now, saying that in America, this message is going to do this. I know that. I'm just saying let's not, let's not give up on the dream. I mean, we live in America. This is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's set up that way. It's about survival of the fittest. It's about rugged individualism. It is about looking out for number one. It is about building bigger barns and building bigger uh, portfolios. Uh, it's the way the system is. And this isn't our fault. It's not our fault. I'm preaching to you. you know, you're all poor, whether you know it or not. <laughs> Relatively speaking, you're all poor people, just like me. And there are much poorer people than us. Much, much, much poorer. And there are people that have wealth that we in this room could not even begin to wrap our heads around. They don't even know what to do with it. They can't even spend it all. And that is part of what causes such a depressive systemic injustice. It's called the velocity of money. The, the velocity. Once money ends up in a big barn, it's not circulated anymore. It just stays stagnant. And the, and, and the circulating pool gets smaller and smaller, and then you get the bigger and bigger divide. Okay? How much is enough? And as a country and as a nation, as a world, when are we going to maybe take the risk collectively in saying, why don't we follow this path of trusting God and helping each other out because we're all in this together. Peace and grace be with you.